It's a good thing and an exciting thing to see that it takes a minute to wrangle people back to their seats. We, get, we actually get excited about that sort of thing. So, welcome to Redstone Church. If you don't know me, if you're new, my name is Sam, one of the pastors here. Um, and I get the pleasure of preaching last week, today, and next week. So that's a lot of fun for me. And uh, Camp Redstone kiddos, if you didn't see it, there should be a coloring sheet in the back and crayon. So your parents can grab one for you if, if they want to. Um, and then also, I wanted to point out, some of you guys have noticed there's some really small worship guides, because we ran out of the big sheets after 120 last night, so there's about 50, 55 like this. So if you got one of these small rectangles and you'd rather have one of the squares, grab one in front of you, because you got to have super sight to see the passage on that, but that's okay. All right, so um, good morning to everybody and welcome. Uh, we are in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, all this month, and so we're in our second week of that, picking up in verse 7, and that is in your worship guide if you have the amazing eyesight to see it in those little worship guides. If not, it'll be on the screen, and of course there's Bibles and phone apps and all that sort of thing. So if you want to make your way there um, and kind of get ready, we'll start jumping in. So I've mentioned many times before, I'm a school teacher, I've been in lots of different places, and so I used to teach eighth grade English, and one of the the novels that I taught in eighth grade English. It was a, a book about the, the Holocaust. Um, and it was a really neat book because it starts off with the narrator of the story saying, here is a small fact, you are going to die. Pretty morbid, right? But it draws you in as the reader. Um, and actually the narrator in that book is death, but that's for another story. But it's a great way to begin a book, to begin a story and to pull in an audience and readers. And that's actually where we're going to pick up today um, in our passage and in our sermon with something very related to that. But I wonder if we were to be honest with ourselves, how many of us actually think about the end of all things? It's pretty morbid, right? Most of the time we don't really want to want to go there and that makes sense for us. But the Bible's clear that it's actually a good thing for us to think about that. If you were to read in Ecclesiastes 7.2, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So biblically speaking, it's good to think about those things. And that's where we're picking up in our sermon today. But, but why is that? Why is it good to think about the, the, not just the end of ourselves, but the end of all things, right, as we know it? In one sense, because it's reality, you don't want to be caught unawares. But also in another sense, I think, because it kind of makes you laser-focused, right? It helps you to keep in mind, like, what is most important and to remember that throughout your life. So as we jump into things today, I just want to kind of simply state more or less where we're going. Picking up from last week. Last week we talked about our mindset as Christians. This week we're getting a little bit more into our conduct with that mindset. So with a Christian mindset, we are to understand that our world will not last forever. Therefore, as we see in our passage today, we are to be focused in our prayers, earnest in our love, and using what we've been given by God to build up his church and for the glory of God. And so that's in a nutshell, in one sentence, that's kind of where we're going to be today in our time together. And more or less, that's what Peter's reminding us. Hey, the end is coming. Here's what you need to focus on. Here's what you need to do with that. Because our Savior is returning. It is imminent. It's only a matter of time. So let me read the passage for us and then pray for us and we'll jump into it today. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 beginning in verse 7 and going through 11. And the word of the Lord says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him 
belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's pray and then we'll jump in together. So Lord God, we, we thank you each and every week um, for your word, for your church, uh, that in your word you reveal yourself to us, that you convict us in, in ways in which we sin, and that you encourage and build us up and call us into greater discipleship, uh, fellowship of you. So we thank you for these things. And so we come before you humbly, recognizing that we are finite and incapable of, of understanding your word to the depths of our being and, and to living out that word without your help. And so we ask that now in this moment, that your Holy Spirit will reveal your truth to our hearts, that you will just continue, as you promised, to transform our lives, look more and more like Jesus Christ throughout our lives. And we pray in our time together today that um, your word is clear to us, that you are magnified and glorified and highly lifted up. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so picking up just very quickly from last week. Last week we focused on our mindset as Christians. And we sought to understand, well, what does that mean? What does mindset look like? And it kind of gave us the two sides of mindset. One sense was looking at Jesus Christ and the suffering that he went through, but he did it for a reason, for the joy that was set before him. And we're to be like Christ. We also talked about there's a sense of suffering in which we as Christians, if we have the mindset of the Christ follower, if we have a mindset of the baptism that we're going to see today, then we must recognize that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ, right? And alive to righteousness. And so if we live our lives that way, we will face suffering in this world. And so we need to have the mindset of Christ in which we are willing to go through that suffering for the joy that is set before us, the promise of our eternal life, and to do it for the glory of God, um, and to be willing to take whatever the world may throw at us. And so we are focused on those sorts of things last week. Remembering that as Christ followers, we must be different, and being different can be hard. And in the end, we just lightly touched on Peter's encouragement um, to his readers and to us as well. The fact that one day, all of us, you know, the whole world will stand before God, right? And those who do not know Christ Jesus will have to stand and, and be held accountable for their actions. And so he's saying to those that are maligning you, even if it's for your entire life, one day they will stand before the judge. And so there's encouragement in that, that there is hope in the end, and people will be held accountable for those things. Um, so we want to pick up there today, uh, again, beginning in verse 4. So you'll notice in your worship guide, I didn't get you guys, I didn't get truths prepared ahead of time enough for them to be in your guide, but hopefully you have some room to write things if you want to. And my truths are very, very simple today. There'll be four of them. The first one, very simple, is the end is near. Truth number one that we see in our passage today, the end is near. So again, I know that it sounds really morbid, right? Like, who wants to go there? We're going to have a baptism, we're celebrating today, and you're going to talk about the end of all things? Come on. But I don't mean to come across in a morbid way, just trying to, to go where the passage is and to offer encouragement even. So what does this mean exactly? I mean, if you think about the end is near, and you're like, well, I mean, let's be real, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. I mean, that's not as near as you would think if you're Peter writing this sort of thing. Clearly, it's not quite as close as he thought that it was. But I think what Peter is meaning, and a lot of commentators agree on this, if you go read commentaries, is he's looking at the overall storyline of Scripture, or he's looking at redemptive history. And we kind of mentioned this briefly last week, that if you look at the redemptive history of the storyline of the Bible, you have the four primary movements. You have creation, right, which happened. You have the fall, which happens, unfortunately, very soon after. And then you have a really long time of just sin and the fall, leading up until when Jesus Christ comes back, right? So you have creation, fall, redemption is what happens when Christ Jesus came for us. And so if you look at the redemptive storyline of history, that means there's only one more piece left in which Christ returns, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is the last one in which he will restore his people, right? And to right relationship fully. We already have that through redemption, but one day we will be face to face with God and that will be a glorious day. So when Peter, I think, is saying that the end is near, he's saying three-fourths of the redemptive history, God's plan has already come to fruition. 
And so we are just waiting on that last, fourth, final piece. And so whether that's a few years after Peter writes it, which it wasn't, or thousands of years later, whether for us that's really soon in our lifetimes or another thousand years, we don't know. But what we need to understand as believers is that we are just waiting on that last, fourth, final piece for our Savior to return. Therefore, the end is near. Christ is coming soon. Now, for those of us in this room that are believers, are Christ followers, that's really, really good news. But if you're someone in this room who does not know Jesus Christ, then that's not such good news. The end is near. And so we need to keep this in mind as believers, as we understand Scripture. There's lots of other things that are uh, mentioned. Oh, that was our verse from earlier and our truth. There you go. So a couple of quick passages for you to think about this as well. First Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We don't know when he's coming, but he's going to come and it's going to surprise us. Matthew 24.36, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So Peter, he didn't know when Jesus Christ was returning, but he knows three-fourths of the way is already there, and he's coming anytime. And that's where we pick up today. Christ Jesus can come at any point in time, and so that means that you and I, we live in the last days. So why does Peter warn us about this, or maybe perhaps if you have a better perspective, why is he encouraging us with this? Because again, picking up from last week, this is the mindset that we are to have as believers. Just like the mindset of Christ, we are separated from this world. And so that means since we're in the end of that redemptive history, we are to be about the Father's business. We are to be obedient and moving forward in terms of following what Christ Jesus has called us to in this life. We are to live a certain way and think a certain way and, and, and behave a certain way. And so our beliefs, and if we truly believe that this is true, that the end is near, then it ought to have great implications on our lives and the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives. And I think that's exactly what Peter's doing here for us. He's picking up with this. It sounds like it's out of the blue. The end is near. You're like, wait, wait, what's going on? But he's trying to like grab our attention, remind us of these things, and then give us a few basic implications or a few things, a few therefores to step into based upon this. And so that's where we're going to be with the rest of our time together. So he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We'll pick up the rest in a minute, but this, this is his first implication for us and our truth number two. So these are directly out of Scripture. It makes them easy to jot down if you're taking notes. Truth number two, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. So let's talk about that. You see, all throughout his letter as Peter is writing to his readers, especially in thinking about those churches at that time where you have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, especially with those Gentile Christians, but with all of them, he's trying to remind them, like, here is the reality of the gospel, and here is what it means for you. Just like Paul did in Ephesians, here's who you are in Christ Jesus. Because of those things, this is how you must live, right? It's out of the reality of the gospel out of the reality of who we are in Christ Jesus that we live. It is not for those things. And so what he's doing in this letter for those believers and for us is he's creating these juxtapositions in which there is one side kind of posed against the other in a sense. And you see that throughout the letter in which he's showing like, here's the way the world is and here's the way you are to be. Here is how you once were. Here is how you are to be. And he kind of keeps bringing that up to kind of show the rub in a sense of, especially to those believers, like, you are this no more, therefore be this. And we need to understand those things too. So real quick, just a reference from verses three and four last week, when he was talking about the world and the way in which the world acts or the way in which believers before they came to Christ used to act, he says that the world engages in a few things. They engage in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, and they malign believers. So that's the world 
In contrast to those exact things, he tells us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. So these are the exact opposite of those things that he listed in verses 3 through 4, in which there is no self-control, in which people are not sober in their thinking. He tells us, if you are a Christ follower, you are to be different, because you are different. I want to pick back up real quick with, with a passage, a reference from Matthew 24. And Jesus is speaking here, and he says, again, and we referenced this earlier, but concerning that day and hour in which he's going to come back, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But then it continues, and I think this is a great picture for us too. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of Jesus Christ. Then two men will be left in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And so this is Jesus Christ himself saying these words. But this is exactly what Peter is warning us about in this passage. He's saying the end is near. Redemptive history is coming to a close. We are three quarters of the way there. Our Savior is returning. Therefore, don't be like the world. But be self-controlled, be sober-minded as you wait for his return. Don't be distracted by the things of this world or live in sin like you once did. Focus, have laser focus on the fact that he is returning. Control yourselves because you're no longer that old creature. Like we talked about last week in those few verses. Like we talked about Romans 6, like baptism represents. If you are a Christ follower, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are dead, right? That old person is dead. You are now a new creature, and you have the ability, the opportunity to live as that new creature, to live in righteousness, both in your thinking and in your actions and in your words as well. Control yourselves. You are a sojourner and an exile in this world. You are living for another kingdom and another king. Be sober-minded. And I think that has a few, again, implications or, or, or things for us to keep in mind for our lives. So when he uses the word be self-controlled, another translation could also say be sensible or be reasonable. This word was also used in the Gospels, if you're familiar with the story, to describe the man that was once filled with that legion of demons. And there, I put it up there. So Mark 5.15 and they came to Jesus. So these are the other townspeople, right? They came to Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. That's what it means of self-controlled. He is in his right mind, and they were afraid. So as, or as Paul would put it in Ephesians, you know, this man was no longer following the course of this world, following the, prince, the ruler of the prince of the air, right? He's no longer doing those things, but now he was in his right mind, he was self-controlled, and he was living as Christ had called him to live. And so this is what Paul is telling us. As Christians, we're going to no longer follow the world and look like it, and including in our thinking, we must remember who we are in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, hey, Jesus is coming again soon, so be in control of your mind. Remember that you are free from the power of sin, so live like it. And likewise, he says, be sober-minded. So just to understand that, this, this same word is used in two other verses in 1 Peter. Um, in 1 and verse 18, which we referenced last week from Jerry's sermon the week before, it says, therefore, preparing your mind for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So one way of being sober-minded is to set our hope, right? Our hope in what Christ has done and our hope on his return. And in 5.8, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
So in terms of being sober-minded, we are to be watchful. We are to be aware, spiritually aware of the reality of sin in the world and our own hearts and our need for a Savior and the gospel, the hope that we have in Jesus and the hope that he will return. So what is Peter telling us here? He's saying that we're to be whoops, clear in our minds and not consumed by worldly desires and thoughts or concerns. We should not be drunk. We should not be distracted by social media. We should not be distracted by news and politics. We should not be distracted by the American dream or of our, or of our goals of living our best life now, as the world would tell us. No, don't get caught up in those things. They distract you from the truth that Christ is coming soon and you have a certain way to live as a Christ follower. No, Peter's saying, be serious. Be sober. Be lucid and clear in your thinking and in your heart. Be aware that the end is near and that you are called to live a different life. These are some strong things for us to take in. So why? Why, though? Why are we to be sober-minded and and self-controlled? Well, Peter puts it as, for the sake of your prayers. And so this can mean different things, but I think very simply what Peter is telling us is that if you are concerned with the things of this world, or you're distracted by all these other concerns, I mean, how good are your prayers going to be? Are you going to spend a lot of time in prayer if you're focused on all this other stuff? Probably not, because you're distracted. You're forgetting that the end is near. You're forgetting that you need help from the Holy Spirit to live the life that he has called you to live. And so your prayers are not going to be what they ought to be or what they could be when you're distracted. I mean, think about it for yourself. If you're having a hard season, you're just focused on getting through certain things or or maybe something's going on in your world, or, or work is busy, or maybe you just need a break, and so you go home and you, you kind of veg out on Netflix, or scrolling through social media, or maybe you're somebody like me who just loves to read all the time, and so you read the news a lot, but then you get distracted by all these things that are going on. It's not bad to be aware of what's going on in the world, but if all you do is scroll and scroll and scroll, then you're not going to stop and pray necessarily, right? Because you're focused on other things. Instead, what kind of Christian probably has a more vibrant prayer life? Well, it's probably the one who no longer lives like they used to live. It's probably the one who remembers, my Savior is coming soon. And I'm called to live a certain way, and I need his help to do that. So when he's telling us these things, don't be distracted, and and to be sober-minded is the one who is clear-headed and focused on the fact that Christ is returning, that believer will probably have a more vibrant prayer life. And it's because they're going to pray for the Lord's help as they sojourn in this world. Pray for the grace to face the suffering that Peter is telling us we're going to face. And praying for those around them that don't know Jesus because he's coming back again soon. So when he says, be sober-minded and and to be self-controlled. He's saying, don't, in your thinking, live like you used to. Live like he's called you to now. Don't be distracted by everything else. Focus on the reality that Christ is returning for the sake of your prayers so that your prayers are also laser-focused on what's important. So that's our first implication. Our second implication, again, if we're remembering this redemptive history and, and the truth that we are to live a certain lives in terms of our conduct. The second one deals with our love. So truth number three, love other believers earnestly. Earnestly. So earnestly, what it means is with sincere and intense conviction. Sincere and intense conviction. Love other believers sincerely. Love them intensely, right, with a conviction that we are, we are called to that. Scripture tells us, you know, above all, love. Love with sincerity. Love with intensity. Why? Because there is still the reality of sin in our lives. We touched on this last week, right? The fact that what Christ has done shows us that we are free from the power of sin, and yet the reality is, on this side of heaven, we're still going to fall short. We're still going to sin. 
And if you are in a room full of people, then it's only a matter of time until somebody in that room perhaps sins against you, right? Even if indirectly or unintentionally. And so Peter tells us, love other believers earnestly. And he says this, again, furthering on, because love covers a multitude of sins. And two other places I think are great references for us are Proverbs 10:12, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, which I'm sure if you spend any time in church, you know this verse, you've heard it many times. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So when Peter is writing this specifically to the context of his day, it applies to us as well. He's talking to a young church full of new believers. And the reality is that even within a church, we are all imperfect because we're this side of heaven. We are redeemed and Christ is working in us. He will continue his work in us. He has promised these things, but we are still on this side of heaven and we will still be fighting sin in our lives. So that means even within our young church body, because we're only two and a half years old, that there is, if it hasn't already happened, which I'm sure it has, but there's only a matter of time until our sin causes hurt for other believers in this room. And it's in those moments, Peter is telling us, that you have an opportunity to choose when that happens. You can choose to have that offense and hold it against them and and that sort of thing, or, or you can choose to love them because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, certainly, again, there are, there are situations in a church in which you don't sweep things under the rug, right? We're not, not talking about those kinds of things. But by and large, we are to love one another earnestly and give the grace of the gospel that we have been given to other believers as well. Jesus himself says in John 13, 35, by, all, by this, all people, so the world outside of believers, all people will know that you are my disciples if... You have love for one another. So the world will know that we are truly Christ followers if the people within the church are loving each other. Let's be real. Sometimes that's hard. Some of us are are harder to love than others, right? But that's what we're called to. And so in a world of last days where there is suffering for being a Christ follower... We need a place in which there's love, full of love for other believers. A place that promotes unity and fights for that unity and that peace. And that place must be the church. So love covers a multitude of sins. It's a choice. And it's what we're called to. Our third implication, I'm giving you, I think, four today. No, this is the third one. Just kidding. Our third implication, our fourth truth. One of the ways in which loving others within the church is expressed is through our service of one another. So our fourth truth, use your gifts for the glory of Christ and for the good of other Christians. Use your gifts, your spiritual gifts, for the glory of Christ and for the good of other Christians. So let me pick back up in verse 9 and following. You're welcome to read along with me if you'd like. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So just simply want to break this section down into three small parts. Those parts are hospitality, words, and actions, if that helps you. Hospitality, words, and actions. And I'll be quick through these. So first, in terms of loving one another earnestly, Peter is telling us to be hospitable to one another. And the one another's throughout this section of Scripture, like other Scriptures, I believe, are aimed at the church and those within the church to whom he is writing. 
Of course, this isn't to take away from the fact that we as Christians ought to be hospitable to all people, including those outside of the church, right? That's also true and something that we're commanded to within Scripture. But specifically, Peter is writing to those within the church. And so within the context of his audience and within the context of us, um, I think Peter probably had a couple things in mind, perhaps then. So one, if you think about just the history of the world in that point in time and, and what the life was like for the early church, and one of the things in which he meant to being hospitable may have been to open up your home to other believers. You know, there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of hotels to go to, right, or, or motels or, or what have you to stay at. And so it's helpful for a believer to travel somewhere and to know there's other believers there that I can stay with and be taken care of. So that may have been one sense that he's thinking about hospitality. And perhaps another may have very likely been the idea of church, because at that point in time, they didn't have large boys and girls clubs or, or church buildings to meet within. It was a lot of times done within homes. And so when he's telling them to be hospitable, it may have also been in terms of opening up your home to other believers for church. Because when it comes to hospitality without grumbling, hospitality is hard. Having people in your home is not easy, right? People who host community groups. Um, and in that world in which there is suffering for being a believer, if people are coming to your home for church, others outside of the church are going to take notice. And you might face more suffering for having a church in your home. And again, some believers are hard to love. So how do you love the church? One of the ways is to open up your home, have believers in, and do life together, study the scriptures together, eat food together. So I think those are ways in which he meant hospitality, probably, in their context. But regardless of what it was like then, it is still true for us today. And I think you can probably, in your own mind, think of ways in which you were to be hospitable as well with other believers. That might look like having people within your home for lunch or, or dinner. It's a great way to get to know people. That's why we have a table logo on our logo, right? We talk about the table so much because amazing things happen when you sit down and you eat food together. You sit across the table together. You hear a story. You're, you're on an even playing field. It might look like having you know, those with kids over so your kids could play with their kids. That's a form of hospitality. Your house is going to get messy if you have children over. And so that's another way of, ha of being hospitable. Perhaps it's inviting people within our church body who have moved from somewhere else, right? Maybe um, a college-age person who lives out of state, they can't go home for a holiday. It could look like having them over and then letting them join your family for holidays. It could look like being a family that hosts a community group in your home. And there's lots of other ways. But when we think about hospitality, we are to be hospitable without grumbling, without complaining. That is a way of showing love to those within the church. As we look at the rest of the passage, first there's hospitality, but then there's speaking and there's serving as well. And when he's talking about these things, he's telling us to be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us, the grace that God has given to believers. So these gifts, this grace that Peter is talking about, these are spiritual gifts that Christ Jesus gives to us. So he reminds us that Jesus, through grace, with grace, has given us certain um, gifts. And the purpose of those gifts are not for ourselves. It is for the building up of the church in love. It is for the glory of, of our Savior. And so that's what he's telling us. And, if you, and he breaks it down into two basic categories of, of words and of actions. And he's saying, in all the spiritual gifts, your purpose is to do it to love other believers, to love the church. So first, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. And so here he's talking about using words. The primary thing that comes into mind in this is, is those who preach and teach. That's not the only context, but certainly one that comes to mind first. And so those who preach and those who teach, whether on a Sunday morning or in community groups or if you're a Camp Redstone teacher or whatever, and you are teaching the word of God, you're to remember that it is God's word that you proclaim and not to inflate yourself with your own words or make yourself sound good, perhaps. And let me tell you, preaching is not an easy thing. It's a spiritual endeavor from start to finish. I was telling Jesse earlier you start of looking at a passage and you think, I have no clue what this is saying. 
And then you get into it, and you begin to understand, and it needs to go from your mind into your heart and live it out. And then you're like, wow, I'm a terrible person. How can I tell the church to do this? Look at my own heart. And then you got to stand up on a Sunday morning, and you got to teach it, right? Clearly, hopefully, with authority, hopefully, but also humbly, because when you preach from the front, you're not just preaching at people, you're preaching to yourself as well, these truths. And that is a spiritual endeavor, right, Jerry? To be able to be like, all right, I've got to get up and say what the, what the Word of God says, but do so knowing that I'm an imperfect person as well. It's a spiritual wrestling, a feeling of inadequacy as well. And yet, there's also a feeling of great confidence, because it is not your words that you're sharing. You are speaking the oracles, the Word of God. And so the authority that you have of giving that away is giving away the very word of God itself. And so that's a beautiful thing as well in which you can stand up here and have complete confidence knowing that it is not you or your words, but it's the word of God. And so likewise, within the church, if you're using words, if you are evangelizing or, again, teaching in Camp Redstone or just giving away the word of God to another believer to encourage them or call them up to something, you must remember that it is the word of God that you are sharing. You must rely on his word as you speak, and you must be confident that it is his words that you're proclaiming. And lastly, in service, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so likewise, when we think about the other spiritual gifts that you're doing, you're, you're serving in one way, shape, or form, and the purpose is to build up the church. So whoever serves, whoever helps, as you do so, do it with a purpose for the glory of God to build up his church. Do it for others, not for yourself. And again, that's, that's not an easy thing, whether it's inside of a church or outside, you know, in terms of other ways of serving in the community. It's really easy to make it about ourselves when we serve. Whether to make ourselves look good and get an attaboy kind of a thing or or maybe because you, you find yourself falling in the trap of, of serving so that God would love you more or forgive you, right? It's a works-based mentality. But instead, as believers, we are to serve for the purpose of building up, and we are to serve remembering that we are completely and absolutely dependent upon a holy God to do so. That's why he says to, um, to serve with the strength that God supplies, because serving is hard. And you desperately need God's help to do so. So he's telling us, the end is near, therefore do these things. Therefore love other believers. How do you love them? You be hospitable without grumbling and complaining. And when you use your spiritual gifts, it is not for yourself. It is for building up his church, and it is for the glory of God. And so just our, our last few minutes together before we continue in worship. I want to focus just a minute on the heart. Because if I'm being honest, I think it's really, really easy to sometimes get caught up in just the mentally understanding a passage. As a teacher, that's an easy thing for me to do, is focus on the structure of it and what is it saying. And sometimes it can be hard to move that from our minds to our hearts. And so I want to give you just something real quick. If it's helpful, write it down. If it's not, don't worry about it. But um, this past school year, one of the classes I taught was a ninth grade Bible class. And what I wanted my, my students to understand and what I want you guys to understand is when you read the Word of God, it is not just to know something, although it's good to know it and memorize it, but the purpose is to know a person. Because God has revealed himself to us through Scripture. And so anytime you sit down to read the Word of God, it's an opportunity to know our Creator, to know our Savior. And so I gave my students three simple questions, because every single day we would read a chapter of Scripture together, going through Genesis. I gave them three questions to ask, and they drove them crazy, but we wouldn't do anything else until they answered my three questions. So my questions were, number one, what does this passage reveal about God? Specifically speaking, reveal about his character, which Adam Stein taught to the leadership group a couple Thursdays ago. Thank you for the reminder. So whenever you read the Word of God, it's an opportunity to know God because he's revealed himself. So what does this passage reveal about God? Number two, what does this passage reveal about our sin nature? What does this passage reveal about our sin nature? 
And number three, what does this passage, or how does this passage point to our need of a Savior, our need of the Holy Spirit? So what does it reveal about God? What does it reveal about our sin nature? And how does it point to our need of a Savior? And so if I can briefly do that with us with these few verses, I think it'll help us to go from a mental understanding to hopefully an understanding in our hearts. So as we read this passage and we think through, okay, what does these few verses reveal to us about God? Because it doesn't directly tell us that. So how does it do that for us? Well, I think it, it shows us, we learn that God cares so much for his church. Because he is giving us both warnings and reminders. So it's revealing this, this part of the heart of God, of his love and care for his church, of us as believers. It shows us his desires that the church is full of love for one another. Just as he intimately loves each one of us. And it also shows us that our God is a generous God because he has given spiritual gifts to his church body so that it is built up in love, so we continue to grow spiritually. And he does all these things for his glory because he's the one who deserves all the glory. When we think about what does this reveal about God, those are some of the things that it reveals about God, and you might be able to, to find other things as well. When it comes to our sin nature, number two, we can look at this passage, and if you're like me, we can easily see our shortcomings with a passage like this. You may think, well, I'm pretty easily distracted by the cares of this world, or man, I, I struggle with a sin that nobody else knows about. How can I serve and love the church? Or you may be thinking, some people are just hard to love. Or you may be thinking, I'm one of those hard-to-love people. Or hospitality is a struggle. It doesn't come naturally to me. Or maybe too often we, we struggle to take our own words seriously, even when we offer guidance or hope to others. Or again, it's easy to serve for our own glory, our own hearts. You see, in each of these things, it's easy to see how we can fall short time and time again, how we can struggle even as believers. And in each of those, the issue is that we're placing the focus on ourselves and not on God and not on the benefit of others. But the good news is that despite these things, that we have a Savior, Right? And so when we look at number three, what does it reveal about our need for a Savior or reveal about our need for the Holy Spirit is the only way in which any of us can live out the truths of these, this passage is by the grace that Jesus supplies, by the Holy Spirit dwelling within each one of us and enabling us to use the gifts we've been given, to love one another without grumbling complaining. Because each and every day you're going to need to be reminded of the gospel and to remind others. Each and every day, you're going to have to wake up and say, God, I need your help today to love others because it's hard. Let's be real. It's a, it's a hard thing to do. But the good news is that we are not alone. We don't have to do it in our own power. We get to do it out of the reality of who we are in Christ Jesus. And that is good news. So I hope that you mentally understand this passage today, but I hope in your heart that you also understand and are able to live it out. So as we close today of our passage, just as Peter closes, he ends the last little bit with a sort of doxology or a praise. He finished this section saying, in order that, so in all these things, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's this beautiful praise that he ends with. So we began our time together saying the end is at hand. God's redemptive story doesn't have very far to go. And that understanding influences our lives as believers. And we are called to a few specific things. But the things that we are called to as believers is for the glory of God. For the glory of our Savior who will reign forever and ever. We are his. We are his children, and we are to live our lives for him. So with that, let me pray for us.
Lord God, again, we are incredibly thankful for your word. And so I just humbly pray that as I've shared lots and lots of words, that the focus will be on what you reveal to us. That you will help us to be truly confident in who we are in Christ Jesus. That we will remember that we are sojourners and exiles. And that though the end is near, that is good news for us, but in the limited time that we have in this world, help us to be about your business. Help us to remember that Christ died for us, that we no longer live for ourselves, but that we would live for him who gave himself for us. And Lord, we, we desperately need your help to do this. We can't do it on our own. Help us to love you. Help us to love others well. Help us to serve for your glory and for the benefit of other believers. Remind us of these truths and help us to genuinely live them out. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I've shared lots and lots of words. And if you're new to Redstone, one thing we, we like to do fairly often and for some of us, it can be a dangerous thing, but we like to take a microphone and put it in your hands. And so as you're sitting and you're thinking and processing and you're like, oh, you totally missed this. Here's this great truth to remind people. Or perhaps you have a question I hope is not a hard question. And you would like to, to share that out loud. If you want to raise your hand, Jerry will come around. But just as you do that and if you feel, feel led to share something, you know, remember that a sermon has been preached, so don't preach another sermon, you know, keep it, keep it bite-sized, and, and may the purpose be to build up the church. So with that, if you have anything you want to say or add or ask or what have you, and you're brave enough to raise your hand, Jerry gets to be the one to walk around, he'll bring it to you, and we'll go through a few of these if anybody would like to talk. Good news is I don't have to answer hard questions. Adam Stein, and then you here as well. Go to either one. Jerry's going to diss Adam. Okay, I, I had a question about um, verse 8, kind of. My Bible, and I'd never thought of it like this. I had, I always have trouble with love covers a multitude of sin mm -hmm. because I didn't think we were supposed to cover up sin. I thought right. we were supposed to expose it and stuff. And so uh, it's the first time I've really uh, thought of this, that it says, um, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love makes up for many of your faults. So I like that interpretation. I don't know if that's exactly what it's talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah, I think it goes both ways. It's reciprocated, right? So if you are called to love me and I'm called to love you, if, if one of us has a fault or a shortcoming, then that, that love, that grace, that gospel is what covers up the sin, right? It's not like you're getting rid of the sin or hiding it. It's, no, 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 the, the grace of Jesus Christ has already covered this. Let's talk about it. Let's confess our sin and and remind each other of the gospel and, and point back to Jesus. So it's an opportunity mm -hmm. of doing that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I love that. Of just, not only are you doing it for others, but hopefully if everyone in the room is doing that, everybody in the church, then when you fall short, when Jerry and I fall short, or whoever, we hope that you will love us in return. That's beautiful. Thank you. I was just thinking how, um, as you read scripture, and particularly in this passage, and several of the chapters leading up to this as Peter is writing it's such a powerful reminder that as we understand biblical truths and truths about God they don't just stay floating around in our mind but Peter is assuming that the believers who are reading this that their actions will flow from the truths and I think a lot of times if we're not careful if I'm not careful I can approach reading and learning and growing in my mind and then it just stays there and it's like oh that that's a good truth and then you leave it in this box and it's obvious that Peter doesn't have that understanding Peter's understanding is this is a truth therefore 
from that truth, as you understand this, your life reflects that truth and change comes from that. And so in this one, the passage, it starts with, hey, the end of all things is near. That's the truth. But that in and of itself doesn't really change anything right there. He's just saying this is a true fact. And this is part of the gospel is, is this uh, restoration that is coming. And then he says, therefore, and then now out of that truth, out of that understanding that we understand in our mind and our heart, now he's saying from that place of understanding, now your life is going to look different. And I think sometimes either we can flip it around and get the cart before the horse and fall into the understanding of, okay, I need to do these things so that I can receive truths or whatever that may be. But then there's other times where it's like, oh yeah, I believe that. And then it just stays there. But if you think about the rest of our life, even not profound things, just simple things, if you believe a thing, then your life like reflects it and you walk that out. So anyway, it's just interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyone else? No pressure. Got one right there. Becca. Um, so I, I feel like with the love covering over a multitude of sins and, and grace, you can't give what you haven't received. And so if you don't understand the love of God or the grace of God that he has for you, you can't give that to others. And in being married, I've been really impacted by Carrie and his understanding of God's grace. And now he is very quick to give that to others and to me, and I love it when it's given to me, and then sometimes with somebody else, I'm like, wait, they don't really deserve grace right now. Like, yeah. they deserve to be confronted. And, but he, yeah, is very quick to give that grace out of the grace that he's received. And it's just very apparent that God has transformed him, that he understands that because of how quick he is to give that. So that is just something that's really Im- impacted me and changed how I have understood the gospel of like, I need to understand God's grace for me and his love for me first so that I can give that to others and love someone when they have wronged me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that reminder. That's great. And the picture of what it looks like even within marriage. Anyone else before we continue in worship? Well, if you'd like to stand, grab your worship guides, hopefully the one you can see on, and we will continue in worship.